This is a question and answer session with Joel and Andrea titled Enlightenment and Practice, recorded December 10th, 2000 at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. This morning we are going to uh, open the floor to any kind of question you want to ask and experiences you want to share, whatever you'd like to talk about it. So, who would like to begin? Yes, Fred. Yeah, um, I read in spiritual books terms like um, turning about in the seat of consciousness and um, looking within and having a light of consciousness shine upon itself. And I was wondering the, the practice we're doing in the practitioners group with Meister Eckhart of um, humbling ourselves and going completely out of ourselves. Is that when, when we are able to let go of this egoic stuff, is that when we can see the, uh, is that when the turning about happens or is that when we clear enough that we can see within or is there another piece in there? Let me add one more thing here. Please uh, say who you're directing the question to at first so we don't get confused. And we are both from New York. You don't have to worry about it. We will jump in and <laughs> correct each other. <laughs> We're not shy about that. So you'll probably hear from both of us on all your questions. But who would you like to go first? Uh, yeah. There are many ways to try to describe what happens in the moment of awakening or realization or recognition. And none of them uh, are really accurate. So there are... Uh, there are lots of different ways of talking about it. Like the Buddhists talk about it as a turning about in the deepest seat of consciousness. Uh, Ramana Maharshi, the great Hindu master, talks about uh, attention returning to its source, the mind returning to its source. Uh, Meister Eckhart talks about the will returning to its source. Very similar. Uh, what they are trying to communicate, these images, these similes, uh, are two things, at least. One is a discontinuity. That something sudden and dramatic and remarkable happens, if we like, in consciousness. There is a turning about. There's a shift, as sometimes it's often called more popularly today. There's a definite, complete shift. So this is different than... Uh, other aspects of the path which are gradual. We gradually gain freedom from our conditioning. Sometimes that comes in little mini shifts. We suddenly have an insight. We see, oh, this image I've been hanging on to of myself is causing my suffering, and then we, we drop it, you know. And then the condition will come back, but not as strong. And then if we can see it again, it'll come back, and, and pretty soon it'll be, you know, it won't have any effect on us. We may still come back just out of an old habit. So this first thing about the discontinuity. The second is more subtle, and this is the, really the hardest part to describe. And I can only know how to do it by adding another analogy, uh, which is the one that works best for me. If we think of attention, uh, our normal awareness, awareness that moves, that, uh, that can single something out, that can be very expansive, where we take in a whole panorama phenomena. If we think of that attention awareness as a wave rising out of an infinite ocean of consciousness, then full awakening happens when that wave recedes back into consciousness, just, just for a moment. It just has to be for a moment. And we realize that this wave that we thought was something separate from the, the total reality isn't. So this is this returning to the source, attention returning to the source, will returning to the source, self-will returning to the source, which is divine will in Christian terms. Do you know what I mean? There's no such thing as a separate will. <coughs> so when that wave returns or recedes, and when we recognize, and this is the really mysterious part, because the wave can recede and we don't. In dreamless sleep, the wave is receded. We don't recognize. We're not lucid. But in that moment, that's the precondition for awakening to happen. Suddenly, what we thought was there is not there. And namely, an independent, separate self that has any inherent existence. It isn't there for a moment. So I don't know if that's helpful. 
Do you want to add anything? Uh, just to say that the um, what's considered the gradual way to that, which Joel began with, where you um, identify those obstructions or ideas that we overlay on this awareness. By identifying those in practice, in meditation practice, moment to moment, by seeing where emotions arise, reactions to emotions arise, thoughts arise, reactions to those things arise, the, the sense of labeling things, perception, acknowledging things and having reactions to them, if we can continue to be present to see what is arising and dissolving in awareness on a continual basis where, in fact, we're training awareness to be aware of what's arising and dissolving in itself, then we're better situated, so to speak. We're in a position to recognize that what arises in awareness is always in awareness. It never... But we're distinguishing the action of simply reacting all the time without being aware of the awareness or remaining in awareness and also seeing reaction happening simultaneously. So we're setting up this ground uh, basis of awareness in which absolutely everything that comes and goes is, is known directly to never have left awareness itself, that purity. So then the recognition of the wave dissolving back into the depth of the ocean can, can, can occur. Why? Because we're gradually training ourselves to recognize whatever comes and goes in awareness is the stuff of awareness. We're not lost in the reaction. We're not lost in the habitual tendency. We're not lost in the pattern or tape of what has been played out previously. So that they're actually not two different things. The spontaneous turning around in awareness is really just, in, in one way, a recognition because we're always, that's always going on. We're always, uh, 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 enlightenment, uh, uh, awakeness is. It's never not. <laughs> so what are we talking about then? Recognition of it. So how can we recognize it? By gradually on one level of our training and conditioning and meditation, always remaining aware of whatever is arising and dissolving in awareness. So then the recognition is set up to occur. And let me add one other thing. <laughs> if we don't do this, uh, what's very likely to happen is we have a split-second recognition when awareness returns, and we know something startling has happened, and we actually even get a glimpse of a reality that is non-dual, but that conditioning is there, it, it, it comes back in, the, the wave arises again, and we're lost again. And this is why people can have very profound, what I call Gnostic flashes, but it does not free them completely. That, that uh, training, that gradual training is extremely important. When... Uh, awareness returns to the ocean, it's going to ar ar arise again. If that's not a permanent state, you know, that doesn't mean you become catatonic when you wake up and so awareness never goes anyplace again. Attention goes all over the place. The, the difference is you then the recognition is spontaneously there of what's really going on. You're not fooled anymore. That's why Ramana Maharshi was one of the great purest mystics of the 20th century, he read the newspaper every morning, just like you might read the newspaper every morning. He read the words just like you read the words. He understood what they meant just like you understood what they meant. The difference is he knew everything he was reading about, everything that's going on is the play of consciousness. He didn't get suicidal when, uh, when accounts and recounts were being debated. <laughs> Which is also why... Um, I, I, I always like to say this, who's ever been here for the first time, the center acknowledges the great traditions and the teachings of all the great traditions. I, uh, in, in my own practice, in my own path, took a Buddhist path. One of the things about the Buddhist teachings is that they, they recognize that to have the nature of mind or this, 
this purity of awareness that is already who are who we are to have it pointed out is one thing but to have it remain the stabilized ground of being from which all activity emerges and dissolves back into is is quite another thing so that our spiritual practice you know how many times Joel and I have said why do we practice practice itself is enlightenment the very practice of remaining aware of the arising and the dissolving in awareness is enlightenment itself so we need to be grounded in practice otherwise we're not recognizing the divine in the ordinary you have to keep in mind what a basic level I'm coming from this this question may already have been answered in that but it's something I've wondered about before and I didn't pick it out and that is enlightenment is an occurrence right and one a once in a lifetime you're enlightened if you're truly enlightened I mean I suspect you could fool yourself into thinking you've been enlightened but if it happens then post enlightenment can you expect to uh, be non-judgmental and uh, spirit of loving kindness thence forward I mean you know let me let me uh, point something out th uh, that's wrong with the question not not that you're wrong to ask the question but why it cannot be completely answered and also to say that question is what everybody has in their mind what he just yes. said perfectly is what everybody thinks thank now, you for bringing it out you are talking about enlightenment as though it's something that happens in time that's a normal way we talk about it. We go along here, and then suddenly we're enlightened, and that, then that's an occurrence. You use that word in time. To be an occurrence means occurrence in time. Now, we can talk that way, and I'm going to talk that way, but I just want you to keep in mind that that's not really the truth. Time arises in consciousness. To recognize that consciousness is the ground of all reality is to recognize consciousness is the ground of time. Consciousness never appears in time and disappears in time. Do you see what I mean? The recognition of that is timeless in that sense. And that's why I often say, and now I'm talking in terms of time, enlightenment is retroactive. It's, it's not like there was a time when you weren't enlightened. That's part of the recognition, is to realize there was never a time when you weren't enlightened. Do you see what I'm talking about? So I just want to point out here, now we are, we are dealing at the point where, uh, right at the edge where language can't go without just have paradox after paradox after paradox. But then let me try to answer the question in a relative way within the context of which you asked. And there is no other way to ask the question, really, because we have to use our language. So um, most traditions recognize <clears throat> degrees of insight. And so a part of this depends on semantics, how we're using terms. I like to talk about Gnostic flashes or even Gnostic episodes where someone has a Gnostic flash and, and that reality is continued to be recognized for a while in time. It seems like in time. It doesn't seem like in time at the time, but what happens is the conditioning comes back and then people feel like I lost it. And really they haven't, but the illusion that they have comes back, you might put it that way. And then they're back in time. So the first part of this is, it's very common on a spiritual path for people to have Gnostic flashes, even Gnostic episodes, before they have a, what I call enlightenment, or if you want to call full enlightenment, or full gnosis, or whatever you want to, however you want to talk about it. In my experience, and in the experience from what I read of other mystics, and notice we're already really in deep doo-doo here. I have to use the word I, but this is all just for the, the sake of uh, language, you know. In my experience, nothing changed fundamentally from August 13th, 1983. I have not learned or seen or recognized or awakened to anything more than then. Now, 
we're not talking about thought processes here. We're not talking about intellectual understanding or knowledge. We're not talking about um, some sort of emotional state of bliss or any particular kind of thing. You see what I mean? All that continues to change. All that is phenomena rising in consciousness. All that is inherently impermanent. And I might add, delightfully impermanent. Like a symphony. Do you know what I mean? So, for instance, you mentioned loving kindness. If we talk about loving kindness as a, an emotional feeling, oh, sometimes I feel really loving and kind. Sometimes I feel a little annoyed. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sometimes I can even get angry. If we're talking about loving kindness at that level, that it, an emotional arising, that's constantly changing. It'll change for everybody. And I'll, I'll go back to use an example because uh, sometimes we think that enlightenment is some sort of static state. And particularly when we look at Eastern exemplars, great teachers from Eastern traditions, because their emphasis in portraying it is the Buddha is in this deep meditation. Do you know what I mean? That's their emphasis. The Western emphasis is more active. Christ is a very active figure. Muhammad is a very active figure. Do you know what I mean? The truth is somewhere in between, or let's put it this way, the truth transcends both. But when we look at the Eastern traditions and we get this idea fixed in our mind that enlightenment is some sort of static state, then we meet a teacher, even a very pure teacher like Ramana Maharshi, and we see they get angry. And he did. He was once served uh, an extra mango. He was sick and he was getting old, and they were serving mangoes to everybody, and they thought they'd slip an extra one onto his plate. And he spotted it, and he got really P.O.'d. And he said, if you're going to give me an extra mango, you have to give everybody in this room an extra mango. Uh, Amachi, she's the guru who, uh, her primary practice is to be totally open, loving uh, for whoever comes and her practice is to hug them. And maybe say a few kind words or something. Back in her ashram, she can be very severe. She gets angry. In the documentary they showed when she was a young, a young woman, they, uh, her family wanted to marry her off to this guy. She came after him with a stick and drove him out of the house. He reminds you of <coughs> Jesus in the temple. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so it's not that even in full awakening, you're having emotional feelings of loving and kindness. What does happen, though, is that everything that arises is recognized to be play, the way you would in a movie. Always recognize the movie as a movie. Even though you get wrapped up in it, you get emotional reaction, you root for the hero or heroine, do you know what I mean? So that's the, that's the first thing. The other side of it is the, the inherent nature of this consciousness is love and compassion. And we're not talking about emotion here. Emotion is the expression of that. But this love and compassion is the ground out of which that arises. And I like to use the uh, analogy of space. Why is the space completely loving and completely compassionate? First of all, because this space is what everything arises out. We could use Western terms, say this space is, creates all this totally freely without wanting anything back in return. As the Taoists like to say, the Tao creates the myriad creatures, nourishes them, and asks nothing back. Claims no merit. This is a total free, selfless gift of consciousness to itself. So that's the first thing. All this is a product of love. Exuberance might be a better word. Joy, ananda is the way they talk about it in the East. Then, what does arise in this space, like space, there's no judgment about whatsoever about whether it's good or bad, and there's no rejection of it or no clutching at it. So just as uh, this uh, gong here in this space, the space does not care if this is a pretty gong or an ugly gong. The, the space does not care if I'm holding a gong or a piece of shit, pardon my French. It does not. The space equally embraces the gong or the shit. Do you see what I'm talking about? Equally, without the slightest difference or distinction. Embraces it, 
puts it forward and embraces it in space. No pushing away. And doesn't prefer this so that when this goes, there's no clutching at this or like trying to hurry up and get rid of the piece of shit. I'm, I'm using this purposely, this word, to get something strong here. Do you know what I mean? Because it is true about space. Now, that's an analogy, but that is what mystics mean when they say that fundamentally God or uh, the ultimate reality or Buddha nature is fundamentally, inherently loving and compassionate. They don't mean that uh, just waves of a particular emotion are, have formed into kind of a standing wave that just sits there and vibrates. In fact, that would be pretty boring. So I don't know if this is helpful or not. It's very difficult to talk at this level, but it's important to because one of our problems on a spiritual path is the ego forms ideas of what it would like enlightenment to be. And that becomes a great obstacle because then we're practicing to attain some state that in which we will feel protected and vulnerable, superior, full of wisdom, we'll know what to do. You know, we have all these ego dreams about what it might mean. They are really serious ego delusions. Almost everybody comes on a spiritual path with those things because they're suffering, they're unhappy, they want happiness, and they're thinking of it still in terms of how the ego can be happy. But at a certain point along a spiritual path, we have to let go of those uh, fantasies. We really have to open ourselves to the truth, not what we would like it to be, but how it reveals itself to us. And in doing that, what we're really doing is opening ourselves to pain, to suffering, to uncertainty, to not knowing, because these are all the truths from the ego's point of view of the ego in the world. So we are not trying to get away from the sordid realities of this world. We are trying to go into it, to investigate, to see, to totally accept so that we can get to the bottom of it. And we get to the bottom of it. Oh, yes, we do find something beyond your wildest dreams of happiness, truly. But they aren't, have nothing to do with your ego dreams of happiness. They're beyond it, literally. And, and the ego's idea of enlightenment, awakening, of even a defiled mind, the idea we have of who we are as a confused, sentient being, those, the, the real practice is to recognize that all those ideas, no matter how elevated nor how profane, they all depend on this basis of awareness that gives birth to the most positive and the most negative ideas, the most positive and the most negative states of being or mind or emotion or anything. So that as one brings more awareness or attention and awareness into the groundless basis of all these states that arise and dissolve, that are dependent on causes and conditions and always changing and always impermanent, one becomes more grounded in what everything depends on. And so all the energy is taken out of idea and projection and just into the pure, already perfect ground of relaxed, all-expansive, spacious being, in which, at which place nothing need be done. But what Joel is saying, it's just a natural embrace, or that is the compassionate activity of simply being present. Through all, in all, before all, during all, after all, and all ideas of contents of consciousness, which does not change at all, there's no change in, in what's in consciousness. The big change is you recognize absolutely everything that can appear and disappear in consciousness is completely dependent upon the space of your pure awareness. That's what it is. Your pure awareness is no different than someone else's pure awareness, but it is your pure awareness, not the teacher's pure awareness, or anybody outside of your own immediate self, which is the other big mistake, is that we're thinking that somebody out there is going to wake us up, or some, something out there is what we have to attain. And the whole point is, we simply have to settle back in to this 
awareness turning itself upon itself. Why are we saying that? Because you're already that. So you must remember. You must remember at all times. Any movement outside of your direct and immediate awareness is a movement away from yourself, from your true self. Yes. Well, I had this come up to me the other day, and it obviously bothered me a little bit, and I think everybody's heard it or thought it. And uh, there's a certain level of confidence where I think I can deal with it, and I, uh, but I want to ask you to maybe say something, either one of you, about this. This is a real basic one. So I'm going to be this person just for a second and make a statement, and I'd ask you to respond to it. All of my life I've looked around me, and there really is a reality here, People get in car wrecks, people get married, people go out for a job, people do all this stuff. Totally consistent. The rules never change. Gravity hasn't, as far as we know, changed one iota. Uh, there's a real strong cause and effect system going on here. Um, I really do like certain people more than other people. I'm attracted to them or I don't like them. I try to be fair, but... By golly, it's there and it's all around me and they do it to me and I do it to them and we try to do the best we can. And I hear these Eastern people talk about everything is an illusion. Well, uh uh. <laughs> I can verify that from personal experience. It's not an illusion, it's very real, it's consistent, it's all pervasive. I'll do the best I can, but you guys are out to lunch. I'll make that statement. <laughs> This is a good one. Do you want to go for it? <laughs> I've had a chance to deal with him. <laughs> Maybe a fresh approach. I'm incorrigible is what he's just said. Right, that's a great question. And that's actually a question that I was uh, fixated upon in, in, my, in my practice. I would always say, okay... What you're asking me to swallow is there absolutely is nothing out there that I'm not creating, right? Like you really want me to believe that, but how come we're all seeing the same things happening and what's going on? So there's a few different ways of answering it, but the one, the one thing that got me, and that's what I'm going to give to you and see how this works. In, let's say you know somebody. Let's say somebody in your life who, who just brings somebody to mind. At any particular time, notice how at one time you'll focus on something about them. All your attention will, will engage them on a particular level. Meaning that, oh, they do so many wonderful things. They have so many great qualities and talents and abilities. And notice on another day, you, all your focus will go on, what a nasty son of How could they do Notice how the very same object in awareness, or the very same person, this like immense possibility of, of experience, at, for some reason, at some time, in some place, your attention focuses on one thing when there's six bazillion trillion other infinite aspects about them, but you're simply focused on one little point. Okay, so do you ever think about that? Like how sometimes awareness... Oh, sure. Okay, so that's one, one aspect of about bringing awareness back in on the subjective element in experience. How much of our experience is completely dependent upon how my focus of attention is being directed. Okay, so that gives you just a sense about that. The other, the other, uh, another aspect of it is that Without a prior idea about how to look or how to hear or how to think or how to feel, how are we directing awareness to begin with? In other words, when someone walks up to me or an experience arises in memory, in, in awareness, there's a split second, what's called perception in Buddhism or labeling of I know what this is because I've had a similar experience to this before. And so there's something that arises in awareness that then becomes literally a filter on what's arising in the present moment. My memory 
becomes a filter, my labeling, my perceptive cognitive faculties become now a filter that I'm wearing about the present moment. But I, these are such a part of me, I am such a part of me that I don't even know I have them on. So I'm saying this thing that I'm seeing is out there, not realizing that what's out there is being filtered by what's already in here and coming from past habitual tendency, what's considered in some traditions cause and effect, karmic response based on past action that then becomes a filter or creator of what's being projected out there. Let me add to that. This is excellent. Part of this grid is not just your personal things, but your whole culture. The whole culture. And, and back even beyond that, the whole experience of our race as in terms of delusion. So she mentioned just one thing. Like that, you said, well, there's some people I like and there's some people I don't like and that's it. And so when she mentioned about how some days we focus on what we like and some days we focus on what we don't like, she's asking you to question. And in fact, the way you presented your point of view, it is a really solid, deluded point of view. I mean, it is, you know. And that was hypothetical. Yeah, that's, and I, <laughs> Hypothetically deluded. This was my, exactly my point of view when I, just before I started my spiritual path. And for people with a with a uh, that dense of a delusion, it usually takes something in their own experience to shake them up a little bit. You, I mean, just just the way it is. There's no point in arguing with people and whatever. The, you know, that is their experience as far as they know. Usually, people go on a spiritual path when something makes them question that, and then they start getting interested. Then a teacher's role is not to tell you what is what. A teacher's role is to get you to examine all these assumptions you have. Is it really true? Some people are likable and some people are dislikable. And this is, it really comes from ignorance. We overlook things. We overlook our own experience often because this conditioning is so strong. The fact that we once met somebody, we didn't like them at all, and we end up fast friends with them. Or the opposite happens. We met somebody, we thought the most wonderful person in the world, we fell in love with them, we married them, we promised we'd live forever with them, and, you know, a year later we can't stand them. So if you look in your own experience, oh, these things aren't so fixed. You see what I mean? You mentioned gravity. That's very interesting. Look, you tell me what gravity is. What is gravity? Of course, an attraction for two objects, i.e. a pound of feathers is pulled toward the Earth's center, the Earth is a mass, with a pound of force. I mean, just roughly. And it changes when you go to other planets and... Stuff. But my point wait, is, wait, wait, no, 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 no. So, okay, that's fixed. That's fixed for all time, right? Yes. Right. <laughs> well, I use that in my hypo as somebody who says, yeah, okay. "By golly, I'm a." Okay. I'm okay. No, wait, wait, wait. It's not. You got to play as devil's advocate. Okay. You got to. You can't bow out of the role now right, halfway right, through. Right. Stay right oh, okay. there. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Stay so, right there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but but you see, this isn't true. Now, this isn't true. Not from mystics' point of view. This isn't true from a scientific point of view. That is not the current theory of gravity, that it's some sort of force that pulls things down. Einstein's theory of gravity, there is no such thing as a force that pulls things down. In Einstein's theory of gravity, gravity is merely the shape of space around objects. So a very simplistic, and I'm a simplistic person, I got this from reading one of these books about how to understand Einstein, a very simplistic analogy for this is a... Um, Golf hole, yes, hole. And a golf ball comes along, and the hole is dipped a little bit, the ground around the hole. So the ball, the goal comes along and spins around the hole and then falls in. Gravity is the shape of the space. That's what makes the earth go around the sun. There's nothing to do with any force pulling. That's changed considerably. Nowadays, there are new theories, not totally accepted. Uh, string theories about gravity, where gravity is actually little kind of particles, gravitrons. And I could not explain to you how that one works at all. But all I'm saying is in the last 200 years, last 100 years, gravity's changed considerably. What you think gravity is has changed considerably. <coughs> well, what My does... direct experience, yes. Grandma Gra says, 
this cherry pie weighs this much and whether Einstein comes and goes or all the theories or schmearies are here or not, I can depend every day of my life and my existence that this particular perception and this feeling, which is practical and relevant right. in my world, is consistent and here, and all this is nice talk, but it's talk. Yes, Only but, wait, 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 just stop right now, wait a minute. That's, <laughs> that is the problem. Only we are grandma has lived in a little cabin in the same, in the same place. place for all this time. And if she agreed. gets in a rocket ship, it isn't going to be you've, consistent. And you've agreed on the same measurements. Just like the clocks work. Why do clocks work? Why do our watches work? Because we've all agreed that the increments that have been chosen and written on there, we're all going to have correlate with a direct experience and agree that that's what it means. Without the agreement, there's no such thing as a watch. You and your grandma agree on the pounds, on naming something and calling it that. Just like, let's agree that we're, gonna, we're all going to live in this place and we're going to call this a wall and that a ceiling. And an Aboriginal walks up and says, oh, that's very nice, but I don't call that a ceiling and that a wall. Are we in two different worlds? We're in millions of different worlds. So imagine one day you're having a relationship with your own mind, your own ideas, because you're in awareness. You're really beginning to penetrate to the depths of your own conditioning. And you're watching how thoughts arise and dissolve. And you can, in a split moment, if you allow this, if you are flexible and spacious enough in your exploration, you can see how the exact opposite can arise in your mind. And you could equally have two experiences within a minute of one another, completely based on what you consider to be real, meaning a thought you have and you take it as true. Watch that, and you'll answer your own question. So, these are just I, I, ways of which, if somebody was interested, you could direct them to make an inquiry and point out to them that these things that they take to be so fixed and real, a hard-headed materialist, just as I was, really, literally. Uh, and then if, you, if there's some curiosity or interest in the person, then you can direct them, and then they can investigate for themselves. And then that world that was so solid and the way it is, you start to not to be able to find any ground to hang on to. And I'll add one other thing, because there's another important factor in here. People who are that rigid and fixed about things, usually the strongest motivation for that is fear. I agree. And usually the hardest thing, and this, this applies to everybody on a spiritual path, but particularly people who have very fixed ways of seeing the world to begin with. That, the hardest thing is not so much uh, investigating and finding out how uh, relative all this is, but dealing with the fear that arises when you are confronted with it, the fear of the uncertainty, the fear of being in a world that isn't fixed, that you don't know what's going to happen next, that you don't know how to make absolute judgments anymore. That is starting to pull the rug out from under you. That's a very necessary process on a spiritual path. And this is part of what Andrea is talking about, this deconditioning. And then when fear comes up, we have to look at fear exactly the same way. We can't let fear drive us off the path. We can't pretend it isn't there. But then we take the fear and we embrace the fear. And actually, you can. Uh, there are ways to transform the very fear, the energy of that fear, into the energy of your practice. That's getting off the subject. But, but which is why, as, as our practice progresses and deepens, we have to be able to um, be present for the direct experience of, of fear and anxiety because the world's view, in a sense, is breaking down. And so how do we do that? We can't do that with ideas anymore. You see, then we're kind of at the edge of the world, the edge of the world of thought, where this is why the direct experience of emptiness, the direct experience of impermanence, has to be something that we become familiar with. We actually enjoy, as Joel said, the delightful impermanence of every phenomena arising and dissolving in awareness. We have to get a little bit at home in that spacious, 
openness where everything is changing constantly. So that then, as there is this breakdown of the world as we know it, our ego as we know it, we can let it continue to happen naturally in and of itself to reveal our true nature to us rather than the unconscious tendency of the ego to jump in and do something and to create a false sense of self again. And that's what's going on all the time. Everybody's so close. We're always so close. And then there's something, boom, you get angry about something, you become self-righteous or an issue comes up or something you have to do. And notice, notice how there's so many different ways that we will configurate into being a point and a certain identity again. And this is in direct proportion to our capacity to remain in pure, direct experience of awareness and being with the arising and dissolving of all ideas about ourselves and everything else, all phenomena coming and going, literally becoming at home in the spaciousness of impermanence. That's getting us ready. That is so important. Direct falling into the dissolution of everything arising and dissolving in awareness. But untouched by any of it, what's to be unsafe? The space of our awareness is always home. What could we, there's nothing to fear. We have to become happy there. Then we can have all this other stuff break down and we're firmly grounded in nothing. Um, could you speak on this statement, um, the bigger the doubt, the bigger the enlightenment? Well, it's just what we're talking about. When you can doubt everything, when you get to the point where you even doubt the teachings, doubt the teachings in the sense that, that you can't even hang on to the teachings as the last thing that secures you. Do you know what I mean? When you get to the point where there is nothing to hang on to anymore, then you are, uh, as the Sufis say, distraught and bewildered. And then you're ready for the divine revelation. Because it is, it is beyond uh, anything that you can think of. So another way to put it, and this is how uh, Dr. Wolf put it to uh, Tom here, the truth is that which cannot be doubted. And if you start looking at everything you believe, you'll find it can all be doubted. It can all be doubted. That's wonderful, because you get to the point where you cannot believe anything anymore. And then you can see what cannot be doubted. Cannot be doubted. Not that you don't doubt, but cannot be doubted. So I might firmly believe that uh, God created this universe. And I might not have any doubts, but that can be doubted. I mean, there are people who do doubt it. You see what I'm driving at here? We're talking about... The truth cannot be doubted in the ultimate meaning of that. That it is absolutely impossible for anybody to doubt it. That's beyond words. That's beyond thought. We get there through doubting everything that we believe. And we have nowhere to run. Nowhere to hide in our little belief systems when it's all totally stripped away. That's big doubt. And then that's room for big enlightenment. Uh, a lot of people say to me, uh, part of their complaint about the center, it seems a little intellectual. They want more devotional stuff and this and that. And this is fine. It is true. If you want to put the center on a scale between uh, bhakti is very devotional and janata, we're more on that side. But this is very important. People who say, well, I'm not interested in this intellectual stuff and all that. You still have to look at what you believe. You don't necessarily have to go through as rigorous processes. But if you are a bhakti full of devotion and feeling and all that for God, and you're still hanging on to your beliefs, there'll just be unexamined obstacles. Everybody has a belief system, a worldview. Whether it's a very logically, rationally thought out one because you took a lot of philosophy classes in college, or whether it's just something you absorb by osmosis 
from the people around you, whether it's a very sophisticated one or what we might think was a very primitive one, doesn't matter. Everybody on the spiritual path at some point has to come up against what they believe, because as long as we are hanging on to what we believe, whatever it is, whatever it is, that will become an obstacle. It, in, the, in the beginning, belief in the sense of, well, I believe these mystics tentatively because they all seem to agree from all these cultures, and so I'm going to listen to what they say and I'm going to try and do the practices. That belief is very healthy, but that's not an absolute belief. That's not a static belief. That's a dynamic faith. I like the word better. That leads you. It's not just something, okay, I read the word here in this holy book and now that's it. I can put the book down. That's static, and that's dead. But a faith that, that, uh, that leads you, you hear what Jesus says, you know, if you are truly my disciples, you will practice what I teach you. You will follow my sayings. And then you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. That saying is precisely directed against people who just say, well, Jesus spoke the truth, and that's it. No, they're not truly his disciples. You read the Gospels, he's giving you practices. Tough practice. Love your enemies. You know, pray for those who abuse you and curse you. Now, this doesn't mean you can just do that. This is why it's a practice. You pick an enemy at work. Somebody you don't like rubs you the wrong way at work. And if you're going to take Jesus' words to heart, you're going to take them as a practice. You're going to go into work every day and you're going to say, what would it mean to love this person, to pray for them? Genuinely, you know, you can't fake it. And then you're engaged in practice. And what you start to see is the obstacles that come up. And when you can see the obstacles, you can let them go. This is, you know, this is no different from Buddhism. Just everything that Andre was talking about, bringing these things into awareness, where we can see them, facing ourselves, facing our own grasping and so forth, our versions. You see, it's not a question of intellect versus emotion here. It's a question of wisdom, really, which sort of transcends them all. It's a question of seeing what are the obstacles, what is the cause of suffering here. So really, uh, you know, these, these terms are useful to talk about what kind of teacher, what kind of teacher is that? Well, they're a bhakti teacher. That communicates something. That's good. It's not that they're not useful. But, but all, ultimately speaking, it's this drawing on your own wisdom, trusting yourself, that, that they can be revealed to you. And that they're the bhakti teacher or the janana teacher or the devotion, they're all us. They're all our mind reflecting wisdom to our heart. So that what is the message of the janana teacher? The true message that is yourself that you want to know so you project your Janana teacher, is that is the truth of emptiness, that there's the basis of awareness in which all things arise and dissolve, and this is the great emptiness, so there really is nothing existing that does not depend on my pure awareness. That's the Janana wisdom, emptiness itself. And what is the devotion or the bhakti wisdom? Whoever you're trying to love out there, as soon as you come to your obstacle, what do you have to do first before you're going to go anywhere? You have to have compassion for your own difficulty in that moment to do the practice. It's out of that compassion for your own difficulty that this compassion for the rest of humanity who's exactly in the same spot that you are in, this, instead of feeling separate at that moment, you join with all humanity and have compassion for all humanity's difficulty, then becomes possible the movement of compassion or love. And so a Hindu mystic said this, and I don't remember which one, but wisdom tells me I am nothing. Compassion shows me I am everything. In between the two, my life flows. Beautiful. So there you have, you know, to say I'm this or I'm that is just a silly mistake. Joel said this, and I, I think it's so very beautiful, that all the great traditions or all the great paths, in a way, are all keys 
to a particular access to this jewel that's multidimensional. It's like completely circular and just so profoundly textured and complete. And the different traditions bring you in through a different through a different way and give you a different richness or depth or texture to that to that jewel. And it's really true. But when you get right up close, they're more and more alike. You can think of it as a circle with uh, spokes, like a wheel. And on the outside of the circle, we could look at uh, Buddhism over here, which says there is no God. We could look at Islam over here, which says there is only Allah, no other gods. We could look at uh, Hinduism over here, which has many gods. We could have Taoism over here, which really doesn't talk in terms of God at all. They seem very different on the outside. When we start traveling, if we're mystics, we travel inward. If we are just satisfied with belief, we just go around and around within our little you know, circle on our particular point on the wheel. We run around up and down. But if we travel inward, just as the spokes of the wheel get closer and closer, to the, as they get to the center, the distance between them diminishes. And that's why you find the highest practices in all these teachings, you know, they are almost indistinguishable. You can substitute a few words, and you don't know where that teaching came from. Right. And then, of course, finally, the center, that's beyond words, beyond spokes, beyond form. Did that answer your question? We went off and covered the whole <laughs> spiritual path to answer the question about doubt. But the, the reason, and it's important, because you asked the question that uh, is particularly a, a Janana kind of question. But when we start doubting, it's not just something that happens up here. That's the point. It's something that then affects us emotionally. It affects us, our whole being. We get, as the Sufis say, distraught and bewildered. That is big doubt, not just that we've intellectually questioned something. Really distraught and bewildered. Rumi, that's Rumi's line, I love it. He says, sell your cleverness and, and buy bewilderment. <laughs> of course, then when people get distraught and bewildered on a spiritual path, they think there's something wrong. They come running to their teacher and say, I'm going down the wrong way. What's happening here? And you say, oh, no, 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 no. Don't you remember what Rumi said? Yeah, but I didn't think it'd be like this. This feels awful. <laughs> getting close, getting hot when you're distraught and bewildered. One more. Ah, Yes. Well, I read this little bit of poetic poetry in or prose in a Zen book a long time ago, and it it popped into my mind, so I'm just going to recite it. The centipede was happy quite until a toad in fun said, Pray, which leg comes after which? which worked his mind to such a pitch he lay distracted in a ditch considering how to <laughs> you know, And that's my, my, what I'm feeling here is I don't want to be so distracted by figuring out which leg comes after which by, you know, I want to still be functionally exuberant and ecstatic to be in my human form and performing all of the necessary stuff I have to do in the world. I want to keep that balance. I don't want to lay distracted in a ditch somewhere about all this. <laughs> okay, but what if in that idea, that simile or that metaphor is an idea that there is a perfection and from the perfection is, is the distinction that's made. But once the mind makes a distinction and that is what we're our self-conscious beings, from that moment in time, we are co-creators of our experience, Yes. So that's choosing one thing or another. What we were talking about before was the spacious consciousness or perfection in which no one thing is considered to be any more or less important or valuable than any other thing. And if one remains grounded in that perfection, yes, it's all working absolutely perfectly. And in fact, it is. That's absolutely true because any adjustments that need to be made will be made. God is, it's all taken care of. But on the level of where we have our likes and dislikes, where I have my biases, and where blindly I am acting, walking in my biases and not recognizing that my fragmented, dissociated, isolated mind 
that's grabbing onto certain things and pushing away other things is the source of my suffering and the source of other people in my life suffering, then you want to stop, you want to halt that process, and you want to recognize its fragmentation so that it could be, in fact, whole again, functioning from the place that you begin. That's how I hear that metaphor. So what is it that you're questioning? That if you think too much about what you're doing, that you, you, you're not free to act? Well, I don't... I, uh, I don't want to be too distracted by the thought that I'm living in a deluded state <laughs> so that uh-huh. it renders me dysfunctional. Uh-huh. And uh, I, want, I want to uh, perform with this confidence that, that there, this basic uh, confidence in the perfection of my being and everyone with whom I have contact, you know. So why don't we turn around and make it a practice? Let us assume, just for the sake of the practice, that the universe is like the centipede, that just performs, doesn't stop to think about, deliberate, that everything unfolds like music, you know, like beautifully playing music where the musician doesn't say, well, what, what note should I play next? And, you know, just all flowing, right? Yeah. And through you, through everything and through you, right? Now, what mystics say, it's not that if you do anything, then you'll get distracted and fall in a ditch. What mystics say is, if you watch your life, you're getting distracted all the time and falling in a ditch. And you just watch from your, in your own experience. That's what suffering is in, the, in terms of this metaphor. So the next time you're going along and you feel you don't quite know what to do next, and your mind says, oh my God, if I do that, will that bring me unhappiness or happiness? You find yourself judging, and you know what I mean? Oh, now you recognize the toad. The toad's right there in your life. Unless your life is like the centipede, then there's not one reason in the world to go on a spiritual path. But take the metaphor and apply it to your life so that you can then see the toad. And then you can, in that moment, what is it that makes you stop and and feel awkward and not be able to function? You see what I'm talking about? The reason it's a Zen story is to get you to see how that mind that makes uh, distinctions and judgments, and then take, not that we shouldn't be making distinctions and judgments, but takes them to be ultimate, and takes some self in here to be ultimate, and then gets all tied up in a knot. Becomes self-conscious, awkward, makes mistakes, feels guilty about, you know what I mean? All that, that is the fallout of delusion, the suffering that delusion generates, Yeah. So, since it's stuck in your mind, just take us a practice. And the ultimate truth of that of that uh, idea, right now there is only perfection. That is absolutely true. And then to recognize that means that to be like the centipede that's not thinking about. What does it mean not to think about? It means, in a sense, not to objectify, label, or point to something separate from the timeless awareness in which it's already happened. So that's pointing to a very ordinary and divine state in which reality is ever arising and dissolving perfectly, absolutely perfectly. Where's the perfection? The perfection is that it's always arising out of purity, it's always completely pure as it's occurring, and it always dissolves back into complete purity. And what is that purity? It's the basis of your awareness that has no thought in it, no bias in it, no idea in it, no nothing in it. It's just the awareness itself. That's purity. That's perfection. So you could say there is only perfection. There is only God. What could possibly be out of this God perfection? Nothing. But if I pick and choose, this is God, this is not, then we're in trouble. That's the toad. When we talk about these teachings and sometimes these principles and stuff, we want to find ways to really bring them down into our life. So I suggest this to you. Now, I don't know if this is specifically something that happens to you, but you can find something in your life like this. The next time you go to the closet and open the door and 
don't know what to put on and start being, uh, feel a little anxious or suffering about that and think, well, gee, what should I wear? What should I wear? You know what I mean? Bring to mind the centipede. That's the centipede that does not know which foot goes in front of the other. Right there in that moment. That's how we connect these teachings with our lives. We find things in our lives, areas where we have suffering. Suffering, not necessarily great big suffering, a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of doubt. A sense of self comes to the fore. Will I look good or not, you know? Right there, in that moment of that suffering is our great opportunity. That's where we want to look into and say, well, why? Why is the centipede not just going along? Why did it stop here? Why did it get caught? That's the beginning of a spiritual path. And that's connecting the teachings to our own lives. And if we can't do that, you know, if we listen to all this on Sunday and then go out and never can find ways to connect these teachings to our own lives, well, it's interesting. It's better than, I don't know, going out and mugging people on Sunday morning. (laughs) But really, it won't do any good unless you can really... You know, look into your life. How does this apply? And we find it in in the concrete ways. Not when we're just sitting thinking about our life overall, but in the moment, in the moment. And then, you see, just even doing that, your life is already beginning to be transformed. Because then all your life's interesting and exciting, particularly the difficulties. Because that's your biggest moment for practice. So instead of dreading the difficulties, you start to look forward to them. Oh, goody. Here, I'm going to see the centipede stumble. And I can't know what's wrong with the centipede until I see it stumbled, you know? It's like taking your car to the mechanic. You say, it's got a rattle in it. Well, you take the mechanic, it doesn't rattle. Believe me, it happens. It's just not (laughs) happening now. (laughs) So you want to hear the rattle. Oh, then the mechanic can say, okay, yes. Oh, I know what that is. It's the Framistan, you know, (laughs) get in there. But you see what we're talking about? Which is why it's so important. As we go deeper and deeper or get greater and greater, more expansive in our exploration of what actually is happening, wh- who we think we are, what, what we're about, the more grounded we become in awareness and impermanence because we're conditioning ourselves to go deeper and deeper as a practitioner, the more important it is not to identify with whatever the contents of awareness are about yourself. Do not identify with the fuel that's being burned in the fire of your awareness. So when you start to notice, which is absolutely required, the places of our selfishness, the places of our agendas, of our falsity, all those things, these are just conditioned cause and effect aspects of dependent mind they're not who you are so we have to be able to let them arise with one taste equally let them arise and dissolve in the purity of your awareness otherwise you're going to say this sucks this is a terrible thing to do why would anybody want to spend their time doing this if you're always identifying with what you're seeing So it's really, really important the deeper you go into the inquiry to let go of everything, to become grounded in the awareness in which all contents are impermanent. Any idea you have of yourself a moment later, it's gone. But you have seen it. That's all that's required. Time. We'll, you, go ahead. We'll try to give a quick answer. <laughs> <laughs> it's an illustration uh, of the teachings um, because you told me to watch for the first ding in my car. I bought a new car and Joel <laughs> said to watch for that moment of the first ding in the car. So um, about a week ago, I was going to meet a friend for coffee and she hadn't seen my new car. So I drove down to the coffee shop and we got there at the same time. She got out of her car to come look at my new car. And there I saw it. It was like a big gash, big scrape, and the beautiful blue paint job, big white <laughs> scrape. And I heard your voice say, notice the moment of the first day. And I got down on my hands and knees, and I touched the, the scrape. I could, you know, my Vipassana comes right in the perfect feel, my breath. And, and I thought, this is the way it really is. This is really it. And... 
Thank you. <laughs> and that's a beautiful example of, you see, watching how the centipede stumbles. The, the centipede did not stumble by getting a ding in the car. The stumble is her reaction of not wanting the ding in the car. That's caused the separation. But then to be able to appreciate the ding as this is the, this is the next foot of the centipede, not trying to hold it back and say, oh, no, no, no. I, I like those movements, but not this one. Do you see what I mean? <laughs> This is a great example, just what I'm talking about. Bring this practice to your everyday life. We hear all about these teachings about, you know, go beyond the opposites, likes and dislikes, but we don't know to connect it to our car and whether it gets a thing or not. That's where the practice really takes hold, when you can do that. That is wonderful. And one last thing to say about this is also what Andrea said before. As a teacher, my job is to awaken her teacher. So it wasn't that I was there holding her hand. Her teacher told her, look, it just borrowed my voice. That's all. <laughs> no, really. And then eventually you practice more and more. That doesn't even have to be that gross. You just spontaneously know. So that, that was a, a wonderful example of how a teaching or a teacher acts. When you read something in a book or you hear something, when it spontaneously comes to play in that moment. It reminds you. It's just a reminder. You're doing the looking, the observing. Do you know what I mean? All it does is a finger point to the moon. There's the moon of what's a reality. Look. So that's a wonderful, nice, concrete example. And we're going to bring the formal part of the morning to a close on this grounded <laughs> practice. <laughs> so... Uh, you're welcome to stay and have uh, tea and check out the library and the new videos and audios. And until we see you again, peace to you all.